0: Good morning. Good morning. If you have your Bibles, I'd encourage you to turn to 2 Samuel chapter 9. While you're turning there, uh, just so you know, the next four weeks, this week and the next three, we at this time of year often do a rotation on marriage, family, grandparenting, life, singleness, etc. Well, that's what begins today. So if you decide next week to go to Weston, you're gonna get me in Weston. If you go in two weeks to Marathon, you're gonna hear the same sermon for the third time. Uh, This is interesting, though. The only two people who are going to preach all five services are Jared and I. Jared and me. Uh, So there'll be some alterations for the others, like, for instance, Pastor Dave is going to preach only on February 5th, only in traditions, and he's going to preach on grandparenting. So you'll have some variation in some of the other campuses as well, uh, but I'll do today uh, 8, 10, 20 and 1030 here, and then be moving to the other campuses, so you'll have different people For the next few weeks. Before we get to their text, I also wanted to just give you an update on Guatemala. Uh, As you're aware, perhaps, uh, Kirsten McAvoy, my wife Betty Ann, son Isaiah, Hannah, and I, daughter Hannah, and I, had the opportunity to go to Guatemala to work with Oscar, one of our supported missionaries. Uh, We met with a small denomination. Uh, We thought it was a Guatemalan denomination, as it turns out, it was actually pastors from five different Central American uh, countries that were there. The ladies, uh, Kirsten, Betty Ann, and Hannah, with my son Isaiah helping to translate, did a pastor's wife and female Christian workers conference, first one any of these ladies had ever been to. Uh, They taught on Proverbs 31 and gave them all workbooks from uh, Proverbs 31 in Spanish. They also talked on teacher training and Bible study methodology. One woman who was a Christian worker said that uh, she regularly has 150 kids in one room with herself and two assistants. Please help. And so these are the type of interactions that the ladies had. I had the privilege of working with the pastors of this denomination. It was their annual training conference. And so I taught on hermeneutics, how to interpret the various genre types of the Bible, and homiletics, how to put together a sermon. They had never had any formal training. Uh, Afterwards... uh, Eleven leaders got together with me, and they profusely thanked us, saying that the women were so blessed by the women's conference. And uh, the head of their uh, education department actually said that he had been praying for 25 years that someone would teach their denominational pastors how to preach uh, exegetical sermons. So we had the, the privilege of being the fulfillment of 25 years of prayer. We also met with uh, Los Olivos in Sampongo, and uh, that's the church where Oscar attends. Uh, four and a half years ago, Generation 180 went there, and they worked with a country church running Vacation Bible School and helping to build the physical facilities. That church's physical facilities are now done. The church is thriving. And Generation 180 was used a number of years ago in that part of the world as well. At the very conclusion, these 11 pastors that led the denomination surrounded me, laid their hands on me, and prayed for me. And uh, when they were done, I came to a most startling and enjoyable conclusion I was the tallest person in the room. <laughs> I love Guatemalan people. Let's go ahead and ask God to bless our time in 2 Samuel 9. Father God, we thank you for the opportunity to go to Guatemala. We thank you for the Dominican Republic team that is returning or has just returned. We thank you for the privilege to work alongside brothers and sisters in the Lord from other cultures and to be touched by them and perhaps to impact them as well. Father, we thank you that your church is global and it's on the move and for any part that we can play in that. We thank you for our text today out of 2 Samuel chapter 9. Use it to encourage and challenge our hearts. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Angela Peasy never expected to get pregnant. When she was in college, she was diagnosed with premature ovarian failure. And so, although she could carry a child, she could not conceive a child. When she matured in age and married Ricky, Angela and Ricky greatly desired to have a family of their own. But conception was not possible, and so they began to look into other alternatives of how they might raise up some of the next generation. In their pursuit, they learned about embryo adoption. They had not heard about it before. Let me explain a little bit about embryo adoption. In a rather unethical way, some in vitro fertilization superovulate a woman so that she releases many eggs, too many eggs. They're all fertilized, and then a few of them are placed back into the uterus of the woman in the hopes that. She would bring one or more of these eggs to full gestation. A child would be born. The problem is way too many eggs are fertilized. And when you have a fertilized egg, you have human life. All that's necessary after that is time and gestation. You have human life. And what happens to these fertilized eggs that are not used. Well, in the early part of our country's history, they were discarded or they were used for science, and a few of them perhaps were adopted. In the 1990s, a former pastor and Bible teacher created an organization called Snowflakes, And this was with the goal of taking these fertilized eggs, these human life, and finding women who would bring them to full gestation, a baby would be born. And so this organization came forth. According to surveys, fertility clinics today have 600,000 frozen embryos in the United States. 600,000 fully human life frozen. And so Angela and Ricky applied, went through the procedures, paid the $8,000 for the home study and the legal fees, and then received a few of these embryos. And on August 13th, 2015, they announced that they were pregnant. About nine months later, they announced the birth of their twins, Caleb and Isaac, the 463rd and 464th snowflake babies born through embryo adoption. That is an encouraging account. What's not encouraging is the frozen embryos. What's not encouraging is the unethical way in which some forms, most forms of in vitro are done with extra fertilized eggs, human life, that result in 600,000 frozen babies. Oh, by the way, those particular boys, Caleb and Isaac, their grandparents attend Highland, Dwayne and Linda, Nulty. Caring about, defending, embracing human life. Caring for the least of these. These are what Christ's followers are called to do. Let me read a rather familiar text on human life. It's from Psalm 139. I'll read verses 13 to 16. For you formed my inward parts The Bible is all over defending the weak. It's all over defending life, from the moment of conception to the moment of natural death. Unfortunately, we live in a country and a world that does not value human life. We now have six states that have legalized assisted suicide. It was first done in Oregon in 1992 and then in Washington in 2010, and then it was done by Judicial Fiat in Montana, and soon after that, we were followed by Vermont in 213, 215 in California, and Proposition 106 in the last election, legalized assisted suicide in Colorado. We also have a culture of death from Roe v. Wade and Doe v. Bolton, both seven two majority Supreme Court decisions in 1973, protecting the right of abortion on demand for nine months, protected under the 14th Amendment of the U.S. Constitution. But in contrast to that, the Bible is all over protecting life, protecting The least of these, both in the womb and outside the womb, and frozen, God protects human life. Today's text, I think, is about caring for the least of these. It's about caring for life. Knowing that I would probably preach on this topic at this time of year, several word women, women of real devotion, got together and thought, Let's suggest a text for Jeff. And so they suggested 2 Samuel chapter 9, which is an outstanding text for what I want to talk about today. So let me read 2 Samuel chapter 9, uh, verses 1 to 13. And David said, is there still anyone left of the house of Saul? That I may show him kindness, that's the Hebrew word hased, that I may show him hased for Jonathan's sake. Now there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba, and they called him to David. And the king said to him, are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. And the king said, is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show him the hased, the kindness of God to him? Ziba said to the king, well, yes, there's still a son of Jonathan, he's crippled in his feet. The king said to him, Where is he? And Ziba said to the king, He is in the house of Mikar, the son of Amiel, at Lo-Debar, which literally means no word, but apparently this phrase, no word, when attached to land, means no pasture land. It means barren, it means loserville. He's out in the middle of nowhere. There's, there's nothing good where he's hiding out. Then King David sent and brought him from the house of Mechur, the son of Amiel, at Lodabar, Luzerville. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, said of Saul, or son of Saul, came to David, fell on his face, and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth! And he answered, Behold, I am your servant. And David said to him, Do not fear. For I will show you kindness, hath said, for the sake of your father Jonathan, and I will restore to you all the land of Saul your father, and you shall eat at my table always. And he paid homage and said, what is your servant that you would show regard for a dead dog that is a handicapped person such as I? Then the king said to Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, all that belonged to Saul, And to all his house I have given to your master's grandson. And you and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him, and shall bring in the produce, and your master's grandson may have bread to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall always eat at my table. Now Ziba had fifteen sons and twenty servants. Then Ziba said to the king, According to all that the lord the king commands his servant, so will your servant do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. And Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah. And all who lived in Ziba's house became Mephibosheth's servants. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the king's table. Now he was lame in both his feet. Let's set the scene. The text really begins about 20 years earlier in 1 Samuel chapter 31 all the way to 2 Samuel chapter 4. It's a time period when Israel is at war. The king is Saul, and Saul has gone with the crown prince, Jonathan, as well as his other two sons, all three of Saul's sons. They've gone up against the Philistines at Mount Gilboa. Tragically, however, Saul is mortally wounded. He hasn't died, but he has wounds that will not allow him to recover. And then he hears that Jonathan is dead. His other two sons are dead. So Saul then takes his own life. To make matters worse, Saul's grandson, Jonathan's son, Mephibosheth, is five years old, and he suffers a great calamity. Let me read about it in 2 Samuel chapter 4, verse 4. Jonathan, The son of Saul had a son who was crippled in his feet. He was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel. That is the news that they had died. And his nurse took him up and fled. And as she fled in her haste, he fell and became lame. And his name was Mephibosheth. Now what's going on is this. Back in 1 Samuel, the prophet Samuel had come to David and had anointed him the next king. So all of Israel knows that the bloodline of royalty is not going to continue through Saul. It will now switch to David. But nobody knows when. In the interim, of course, Saul is dead set on murdering David. He wants the bloodline to run through his son, Jonathan, his grandson, Mephibosheth, etc. So then we come to a battle at Mount Gilboa against the Philistines. And all three of Saul's sons die. Saul commits suicide. And what happens is word comes back to the palace. Saul is dead. The three crown princes are dead. The nurse realizes that David has taken the throne And that Mephibosheth, at age five, is a threat to David's throne, a threat to David's royalty. And if David falls the plans of all monarchs of his age, David is going to come gunning for Mephibosheth. You see, if your bloodline doesn't match the bloodline of the last ruler and you take the throne, the first thing you do is murder everyone in the former ruling family. So Mephibosheth is as good as dead. So the nurse picks up Mephibosheth and she's going to run and hide and somewhere she trips along the way and Mephibosheth goes flying across the room. Maybe he breaks his legs, maybe he breaks his ankles, we're not really sure. He clearly does not receive the medical care that he needs and he's no longer able to support himself and he is now a handicapped individual. He's also a five-year-old who has been used to being raised in the palace, but now he's raised in low to bear loser land, no pasture. He's hiding out, and he's been hiding out from David for 20 years. Now, understanding that this is the background, we come to verse 1, where David goes to one of Saul's former servants, Ziba, and he says, this is 20 years later, he says, "'Is there not a relative of Saul?' that I may show chesed, that I may show kindness for Jonathan's sake. And you've got to understand that Ziba is thinking to himself, ha, that's a clever ruse. David wants to find out if there's anyone still alive from Saul's house. And if he finds out who is alive and where they are, David is going to build pine boxes, one for each member of Saul's house. They're as good as dead. I mean, it's not... Realistic to think that David would put his throne and his life on the line looking for a relative from Saul's bloodline because if such a relative is found, David may lose his throne, he may lose his life. So, why is David asking this? Well, we discover in verses two and following that David is sincere, David has been the recipient of God's Hasid his loving kindness, and therefore he wants to extend that loving kindness to the next generation. In addition, David has promised Jonathan, who was his closest friend before his death 20 years earlier, that he will care for all of Jonathan's offspring. And David is a promise keeper. And so David asks, is there anyone of the house of Saul that I may show Hasid?" For the sake of Jonathan. And you have to understand that Ziba is going to be very skeptical. He's going to be terribly skeptical, but, but David is sincere. He's received this chesed. Understand what chesed is. It's a word used of God. In fact, if you go to Psalm 136, it's used of God 26 times in that single psalm. It's somewhat akin to agape in the New Testament. It's the highest form of kindness or loving. It's not about serving someone so that they will serve you. It's not about serving someone because they deserve it. It's not about serving someone because they merit it. It's out of the goodness of your heart, unmerited. It is gracious kindness extended to another. It's the kindness of God extended to sinners that David now wants to extend To somebody in the house of Saul. So, David has made a promise. He's made a promise 20 years ago. Let me read about the promise. It's in 1 Samuel chapter 20, verses 14 and 15. At the time of this promise, understand, Saul is king, Jonathan is the crown prince, there's two other brothers that are secondary crown prince. There's Mephibosheth. David doesn't have a fighting human chance at the throne, although Samuel has said he will be the next king. David really has nothing to lose, making a promise 20 years ago. And this is the promise. Jonathan says, if I am still alive, show me, David, the steadfast, the the hesed love of the Lord, that I might not die. Because Jonathan believes that David will be the next king. Samuel said it so, Jonathan believes it. And then he says, And do not cut off your steadfast love for my house forever when the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the Lord, or from the face of the earth. And David agreed. So now, 20 years have passed, and David's asking, Is there anyone left that I may fulfill my promise, even though Jonathan's been dead and disintegrated, For the last two decades. This is incredible love. Many people. When you make a promise. And circumstances have changed. And 20 years have passed. And you've gone from rags to riches. You would just skip and forget the promise. Not David. He understands at least in this text. What chesed kindness is like. Let me illustrate it this way. There was a beggar. He was out on the streets, tattered clothes, unshaven, hadn't showered in a long time. He walked up to a lawyer and he said, sir, do you have a quarter that you could spare? And the lawyer looked at him intently. Do, do I know you, the lawyer asked? The beggar dropped his head and, and said, you should. We went to law school together. Sam? Sam, is that you? It's me. Sam, what's happened to you? Well, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what's happened to you. Sam, you got to get your life together. And the lawyer took out his checkbook and wrote out a check for $1,000 and signed it. He gave it to Sam, the beggar, and he said, get your life together. The past is past, and, and today you need to seize your life. And you can imagine how Sam felt, a bounce in his step for the first time in, in years, as he headed to the bank, and he walked in the bank, and, and he peered at the tellers, and they all looked so clean and neat, and he looked at his rags, and he thought, they're never going to, they're never going to cash this check. They're going to think I found it and forged it. And so he took the check, and he folded it up and put it in his pocket, By chance, the next day, Sam ran into the lawyer friend. And the lawyer said, Sam, what happened? You didn't gamble the check away, did you? No, said Sam, as he pulled the check out and explained how he didn't think anyone would cash it. And the lawyer friend said this, Sam, the check is good. Not because of what you're wearing or how often you've showered or not. The check is good because of my signature. That's what hesed is. It's casting, cashing somebody else's check because of their signature. That's what God does to sinners like you and me when we recognize our incredible need of a Savior and we cash the check of Calvary that Jesus signed for us. It's also what David does for Mephibosheth. With regards to Mephibosheth, David comes to Ziba and he says, is there not anyone from the house of Saul of whom I may show Hesed kindness for the sake of Jonathan? Understand the tone that must be in the text. Ziba essentially says, well, yeah, yeah, well, not really. I mean, there is this guy named Mephibosheth, but Mephibosheth, uh, he's... He's crippled from the old English to creep. That is, he can't walk. He only creeps along the land. He's handicapped from the old English cap in hand. He needs a handout. He's an invalid, which used to mean not valid. That's who Mephibosheth is. He's, he's not someone you want to bother with, David. He's not someone important. He's not someone who can pay you back. He's not someone worth your time. He's a creeper. He's somebody with his hat out. He's invalid. Now, we, thankfully, don't use words that way any longer. But that's what Ziba is saying about Mephibosheth. That's what society is saying about certain types of life. You didn't plan the pregnancy. It's inconvenient. Terminate it. Don't worry, it's not human life. That's what society is saying about somebody who's very up in years and somebody says they're no longer valuable to society, and so assisted suicide is acceptable, or assisted suicide is acceptable for somebody who's very, very sick, as if being made in the Imago Dei is not enough to value the life. I have no doubt that those who hold positions opposite of mine do so out of compassion, but they do so also in opposition to the word Of God. David rightly believes that Hesed kindness, grace, is for every person, every person. So he sends men to load the beer, the worthless place, Loserville, to find Mephibosheth. Can you imagine what happened when there was a knock on the door? Mephibosheth opens it and realizes that there are men from David there. He's got to figure that they're henchmen. He's got to figure that there's a pine box. That pine box has his name on it. Mephibosheth understands who he is. He's of the bloodline of Saul. He has a legal claim to the throne. He's a threat to David's throne. He's a threat to David's life. And now David's men have found him. And how convenient. He happens to be handicapped. We're talking about the 11th century BC, a thousand years before Christ. We're talking in 1000 BC when someone like David would probably have permission from society to bump off Mephibosheth because it's standard procedure to take out the former royal family. And how incredibly convenient that Mephibosheth is handicapped in a society and a time in which they would have deemed Mephibosheth worthless. Why not bump him off? He's a threat to your throne. He's a threat to your life. And more than that, he's handicapped. He's not valuable as society views value. But that's not what David does. David fully embraces the value. Of Mephibosheth's life. Interestingly enough, while David values Mephibosheth, it's possible to read the text to read it as Mephibosheth doesn't value David. Let me tell you a little bit further on in the text. It's a time period when David is now running for his life. David's son Absalom has taken the throne. David is on the lamb if he's caught, his own son might execute him. And Ziba comes around to give some supplies to help David and his men. Let me read from 2 Samuel chapter 16, 1-3. It's kind of a startling text. When David had passed a little beyond the summit, Ziba, the servant of Mephibosheth, met him with a couple of donkeys saddled, bearing 200 loaves of bread, 100 bunches of raisins, a hundred of summer fruits, and a skin of wine. And the king said to Ziba, Why have you brought these? Ziba answered, The donkeys are for the king's household to ride on, the bread and the summer fruit for the young men to eat, and the wine for those who faint in the wilderness to drink. And the king said, And where is your master's son? Ziba said to the king, Behold, he, Mephibosheth, Remains in Jerusalem, for he said, Today the house of Israel will give me back the kingdom of my father. So it's possible. It's possible to read the text this way. David has extended incredible kindness to Mephibosheth. And Mephibosheth, first opportunity he gets, wants to retake the kingdom from David, which would mean killing David And taking the throne. Now to be sure, a couple chapters later, Mephibosheth will stand up for himself and say, that's not true. And the Bible actually never solves the tension for us. It kind of leaves it for us to decide, did Mephibosheth turn his back on David? Or is Ziba lying? We don't really know. But what we do know is this. God is well aware of extending chesed, kindness, to those who turn their back on him. He extends kindness to all of humanity, creating us and sustaining us, and yet many in humanity turn their back on him. God extends further kindness, Hasid, to those who receive Jesus Christ as personal Savior. But as we sing, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love, too often, even though I have been redeemed through the shed blood of Christ, not because of anything I've done, but only because of what Christ has done for me, yet sometimes I continue to be in rebellion to the Lord who has saved me. David's getting a little taste of that, perhaps, when he has extended incredible love to Mephibosheth and Mephibosheth turns his back on David. Let's conclude with three final thoughts. First, this text really is all about caring for the least of these, even when the least of these cannot pay us back or may not be worthy or may not be individuals who, in society, individuals say, oh, that's a good bet, that's a good deal. you got to invest in them. No, this text is about caring for the least of these when society says, Don't care for them. That's the individual in the womb. That's the frozen, discarded embryo. That's the widow. That's the orphan. That's the single dad, the single mom. That's the infirmed. That's the aged. That's the Guatemalan or the person in the Dominican Republic. I don't know if you saw some of the Facebook pictures from the Dominican. It was caring for the least of these. It was caring for people who were unloved. It was showing kindness to people who were lonely, who never have a visitor, and they're reaching out and ministering to these people. That's hesed love. That's hesed kindness. Christ has extended it to us, and we are to extend it to others. Second and very related, when David discovered that Mephibosheth was handicapped, he had an out. And our society gives us outs all the time, doesn't it? It doesn't expect us to care for the least of these. It doesn't expect us to care for those who cannot care for themselves. It doesn't expect us to extend hassid kindness to those who can't pay us back and of whom we will never get any recognition. But David does it, it's countercultural. And yet he does it because he, like we, is a recipient of Hasid kindness. Finally, David models what it means to be a promise keeper. Some, perhaps not you, would say when circumstances change, when 20 years have passed, maybe you can get out of your commitment or your promise or your vow, or what you said you would do, but not David. Even though Jonathan has been dead and buried, disintegrated for 20 years, David has gone from being on the lamb to the crowned king, a power broker. He spends his time, he spends his money in search of somebody who could undermine his throne and his life. And then he extends Hesed kindness. He's a promise keeper. It doesn't matter that the promise was 20 years old. The vow was 20 years old. The circumstances have changed. He's a promise keeper. That's what hesed kindness is all about. And God has extended it to us. And we are to extend it to others. Let's pray. Father God, I love... And I know you love that David cares for the least of these. In spite of his culture, in spite of the lack that it wasn't convenient. In spite of the truth that it would not elevate him in front of his constituents. We thank you that he's a promise keeper who cares for the least of these. May that be true of us. As you have extended that kind of kindness to us May we extend it to others as I know so many here do. Help us to do so even more in the name of Christ. Amen. Amen. Thanks, Jeff.